Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Welcome to the Psychology Podcast, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. I'm Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, and in each episode, I have a conversation with a guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. Today, I'm really glad to have Katie Morton on the podcast. Morton is a licensed marriage and family therapist practicing in Santa Monica, California. Morton is an entrepreneur and YouTube creator who has built a global mental health online community and is author of the book, Are You Okay? A Guide to Caring for Your Mental Health. Thanks for chatting with me today, Katie. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Oh, yeah, it's my pleasure. I really enjoy your YouTube channel and I learned a lot the other day about DBT, Dialectical Behavioral Therapy, from your video about it. Yeah been trying to think about what's the difference between that and like act therapy you know which they're so similar in a lot of ways they are isn't act created more for anxiety though if my memory serves yeah with that in mind yeah yeah so like these things like were created for serving primarily different purposes but when you look at the details it's like wow everyone's about mindfulness it's like that's the first step of everything these days (laughs) well totally the more aware we are of how we feel the sooner we can like nip it in the bud so to speak yeah but you're not going to see like a new form of therapy pop up that's like our first step is (laughs) (laughs) non-mindfulness like i just feel like it's like unverifiable because no one's going to do the control condition (laughs) totally yeah (laughs) ignore everything you feel yeah that's how we start (laughs) just go automatic you know, just don't be mindful of it. You know, just exactly. like be like be impulsive. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. You know, you want to anyway. It'd be like the anti-therapy. Yeah, and DBT was uh, primarily for um, borderline disorder, right? Correct. Yeah, it was created by Marsha Linehan. She herself has uh, BPD, borderline personality disorder, mm-hmm. and, and DBT is kind of a build on CBT. If anybody like cognitive behavioral therapy, so. Yeah. It's like got the addition of, you know, mindfulness and some emotion regulation, stuff like that. Yeah. 
But then they have, you know, what's cropped up recently is mindful CBT as a subdiscipline. So I'm, I'm trying to think, what's There's the difference between that right. and it just gets all confusing because like every and I, you get to the point where you start to think like people just like come up with stuff for their ego, like to create a brand. Like me I and you, so. we should create like something like. We should. What therapy do we want to coin? Well, Let's we need the word it. mindful in it and if we want to sell books. <laughs> totally. So like mindful, you know, we're going to like make you feel awesome therapy. Yeah, like What's mindful, <laughs> compassion-based uh, behavioral the therapy. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All the buzzwords in there. <laughs> it's like too many. There's too many types. I think it's really confusing for the end user then, which I don't really like. But I, I think it's an ego thing, personally. Yeah. So, okay, well, maybe let's get a little serious then, a little more serious, but feel free. Let's, you know, we don't want to be that serious throughout this whole thing. But what's the difference between mental health and mental illness? Yeah, I talk about that in the first chapter of my book, because I think people, um, I'm glad you read it. Um, I I think people confuse the two and use them interchangeably, but they're very different. It'd be akin to having a physical health or a physical illness. Like we all have a mental health that needs to be tended to. Like I'm going to need to take breaks in my day or in my work week so that I can keep doing what I do. I need to check in with myself, be mindful to use the, <laughs> the word everybody loves. And so that's just kind of a basic upkeep. Just like I try to eat somewhat healthfully, exercise regularly and drink a lot of water to take care of my physical health. I think people forget that your mental health needs tending to and we all have it. And then mental illness, on the other hand, is when our mental health has derailed and we're not doing well, so much so that it impairs our ability to function. Meaning, if I have to go to work or school or engage in social activities, those things become extremely difficult, if not impossible for me, because of whatever's going on in my head. I just can't do it. So yeah, so that's in a nutshell what the difference is. So your, um, your argument that it's important to distinguish with them, does that relate to the, one of the main principles of the field of positive psychology, that like the absence of mental illness is not necessarily the presence of thriving or you know, being above zero mental health? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of that. And then I also think it's important that we use the right words because I don't want, the more we actually talk about things openly and honestly, I feel like the less stigma can exist because mm-hmm. I think people use the term mental health because it's it can in some ways feel less loaded. Like it's not as bad. Like, oh, my cousin just struggles with mental health issues, but really he has schizophrenia and that's a mental illness. You know what I mean? Like, I do. But why should that be any worse? And it's just another term. And I think we should use the proper term and not be afraid to talk about it. Not be afraid. Yes. That's a big part of your work is reducing the stigma around mental illness. You know, I read in an article a couple of days ago that has stuck in my mind showing that Mental illness is a deal breaker for greater than 50% of people in relationships, mm-hmm. you know, especially in like the early stage of dating. You know, if you find out that the person you're dating or has a diagnosable mental illness, that is literally a deal breaker for the That's relationship. Terrible. I know, yeah. I know. And that whole article was framed around the, the I'll send it to you after this chat, yeah. but it was around the, sti- about the stigma and what can we do about that. So, you know, the stigma plays out not just in conscious ways, I guess is the point I want to raise, but. You know, we have lots of subconscious sort of, maybe some of like inborn built-in biases, you know, through evolution totally. that cause us to have these reactions, but it doesn't mean we as human beings can't transcend those instincts. And Yeah. And I think like a lot of times going like back to our original thing about mindfulness, I think we have to be mindful of what our stigmas are because we all have them. We all have our own perceptions 
and the biases, like you said. And I think that oftentimes we don't pay enough attention and recognize that we have them. And so they go unchecked. And then we take them as fact. Like, let's say in relationships, I found out the person I was dating had bipolar disorder. If I understood what that meant and they were medicated and it was managed, yeah. and they had like a treatment team, that wouldn't hurt anything. That wouldn't hinder our relationship or the ability for it to thrive. I think it's just people don't understand and they get scared about what they don't know and then act accordingly. And then that, then that makes the stigma worse. And then that makes it really hard for people with mental illness to want to tell people. Like I've had patients who've been in a relationship for like a year and they're like, so when do I tell them? Mm. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, I understand why they were scared to, because like the article you read, yeah, yeah, you know, if they really care about somebody and that person cares about them and doesn't know about it, what does that mean? You know, does yeah. that mean, I think that shows us that the stigma exists and it's not fair. It's not right. We have to understand what it really means. We have to seek to, to learn about it. Yeah, I agree. So what are the, some of the core issues that you discussed? Let's talk about your YouTube channel for a second, you know, before we get into your book. What are some of the core issues that you discussed in that channel? Like, what were some of your most popular videos? What were they about? What resonates with people? It's funny. It's not at all what I thought it would be. <laughs> it's which... always the way. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And anything to do with trauma usually does really well and resonates with people. And it's got me thinking more and more about trauma in the world, like how traumatized we all are. And I think that people just don't know what to what word to put to it. Yeah. Um, or if it happened when we were younger, as we're older, we look back and we're like, oh, it wasn't that bad. And, you know, kind of invalidate our own experience and our own mm. expression of it. So I think that's why the trauma videos really resonate because a lot of us have had a trauma in our life. What counts as a trauma? Anything that makes you fear for your life or the life of oh, someone that'll else. Do it. <laughs> not, 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 yeah, not to make light of it, but, but that sounds like, okay, That's a, I think we'd all agree on that. <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, yeah. if you say it that way, you're like, yeah, but think about as a child, like if a parent yelled at you, yeah. like really, because they were scared and they were upset and they were worried. As a child, you could be terrified and think they might kill you or hurt you. And even though maybe our parent was never physically abusive, never did anything else, that time, that thing still happened and we were still traumatized. So I always tell people, remember you, like five-year-old you, when that happened, that would be scary. You didn't have the understanding or the wisdom that you do now. So anyways, in short, trauma videos do really well. Also, anything to do with borderline personality does really well, I think because those people can feel, people who struggle with BPD can feel very marginalized and very stigmatized. And because it's one of my specialties, like I can talk about it in a real way and in a more hopefully loving and understanding way. Which um, is one of your specialties? Dealing with borderline personality oh, disorder. Interesting. Okay. I do DBT. That's why, um, oh, that's cool. one of the therapies I practice. So, and that's what it's made for. Do you have personal experience with that mental illness? No, I actually don't, but it's because I trained did a lot of my training in the eating disorder treatment center and there's a lot of comorbidity or happening at the same time, like okay. BPD with an eating disorder. And so that's kind of where that came out of. And that's when I actually got certified as a dialectical behavior therapist and, you know, have kept up with it ever since. So those do really well. And then the the final one or like anything with numbers, like people love like the six signs of depression oh, or the five that. ways to beat anxiety. Yeah, they love that. Yeah, those are kind of the top four types that do well. Wait, what are the five ways of beating anxiety? I'm like pulling out my, <laughs> I'm pulling out my notepad. You have to watch my video. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I like that answer. That, that's, that's, yeah. <laughs> so what is the difference between a psychologist, a psychiatrist, 
a therapist. You know, if you Google in New York, you know, like top therapists, you actually don't just get top therapists. You get things ranging from people who got a bachelor's degree in psychology to like those who call themselves life coaches and then you know, psychiatrists. How do you sort all these things out? What's the difference between all these things? It's, I mean, overall, when you're looking for someone, you want someone who I would prefer someone who's licensed because then they're held accountable. So if something does derail and you are harmed by them, at least you can file a complaint and they are governed by a board. Like I, you know, you and I were licensed through our own states and our own, whatever our degrees are, right? So I'm an LMFT, whatever we practice, we're licensed that way. And so that ensures not only that we have an education, but that we know what we're doing and we've taken, you know, our exams and we've passed them. And that kind of gives you like some security in the treatment because we've done that much work. And so that is like an LCSW, an LMFT, a psychologist, all of those will offer basic therapy or an LPCC um, in the state of California, they have licensed professional clinical counselors, um, which is different from someone just calling themselves a counselor. A counselor can just have gotten their bachelor's in psychology, which in my opinion, as someone who has their bachelor's in psychology, that doesn't really mean much. And that doesn't really prepare you to offer therapy. And so also, I talk about how it's important you can ask, but you can always ask someone what their what their degree is, like what their for their resume. Yeah. And that's part of what your ability is. So there's, I mean, in the book, I get into a lot more detail about like schooling and okay. clinical hours and training. But that's why you, I really think at the bare bones, you just want someone who's licensed because that means that they've gone through graduate school in some form and passed a licensing exam. And then you just want to feel like you like them. Mm. That's really all. If you're finding someone, it doesn't honestly matter if it's a psychologist or a social worker, they can often do very Mm. similar things. It really matters more that you feel connected to them. You feel like they're on your team and they're listening to you because that's what really makes therapy so powerful. So do you have any other suggestions for how to find the right therapist for you? I really like the just simple, like, do you like this person? But there are other criteria you should think about and being thinking whether or not they're a good match for you. Yeah, you can think if you have any certain specificities, like it is trauma. Do I think that that should be the focus of my treatment? I know not everyone's going to have those answers, but just thinking about it, like, do I think that's a big issue? Like if I had an eating disorder, seeing an eating disorder specialist would be the best because they're going to understand. And so specialties can be really helpful and important. Also, just how easy is it for you to get to their office, which I know sounds silly, but I mean, you're no, in New York. I'm to me, it does not sound silly. Yeah. <laughs> it can be a nightmare. Yeah accessibility from a like a bus stop or a train stop, like just making sure it's easy for you so that you don't arrive to therapy more stressed out than when you started. <laughs> like that's not the goal. Yeah. And then also cost, like being okay with paying that and knowing it's part of your budget because that shouldn't be an extra stress. Overall, I feel like therapy shouldn't add more stress to your life. It should start helping you take it away. Yes, therapy is hard work, but just the logistics of it shouldn't be too terrible. So those are some things, making sure they remember the things you told them, you feel comfortable with them, you like the feeling of their office, even like preference of gender, like I prefer a female therapist, not everybody does, but just consider if you want someone older, younger, in the book I talk about, this isn't a place for like being, you know, totally PC about things, just figure out what you want and look for that because we want you to be comfortable. It could be someone with the same religious beliefs as you or similar experience in life, just making sure that, you know whatever you were looking for, try to find the best fit that way, if that makes sense. It does. It's a lot. But yeah. Regardless of fit, like, what are some signs of just a really terrible therapist, like in general? 
Oh, if they or talk like about red science, you know, yeah, yeah they okay. talk about themselves because that's not our time. That's your time. What that yeah. really is as a therapist. I'm like, wow, they need to get into therapy themselves. That's oh, what wow. that means. But so you shouldn't talk about yourself. You as a therapist, they should remember what you say. Like they have notes. We take notes, right? I still do pen and paper. I know I'm old school, but if they have a computer, they should be typing in like your spouse or partner's name or that best friend that you live with or your mom's name so that they can recall that we're not perfect. We will mess up, but like they should be trying to. And so if you are always having to repeat, if they call you by the wrong name, any kind of confusion like that, I'm always like once. Okay. But if it keeps happening, that's just not right. I've even had viewers tell me their therapist has fallen asleep on them. No, that's bad. Well, what if the person was really boring though? Like, fair, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine what that would make you feel like as yeah, a patient? Of course. Well, like, oh. but especially what if you went to therapy because people keep falling asleep on you and you're like, I really need help, doc. Like everyone keeps like thinking I'm boring. Like, and then like, before you know it, the doctor falls asleep. Yeah, he's like, <laughs> you know, like, thanks for nothing. Yeah, <laughs> not re- reinforced. Making it worse. Exactly. Yeah. You're reinforcing the bad thoughts. Yeah. So, okay. So those are just some of the, the basics of it. Okay. Cool. So if you're a really anxious person, like don't go someone who's like makes you even more anxious on a regular basis. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Okay, cool. So we've already covered a lot of ground for people who are like, <laughs> I mean, I feel like everyone should have a therapist. Why not? I think so. If too. they could afford yeah. it, you know, like it'd be nice to have free healthcare for therapy. Wouldn't that be nice in America? It would be nice. Well, in our system's just so it's just so messed up when it comes to that. Like having to make calls as any clinician knows when you make calls to get coverage, it can be like the worst thing ever. And it's so annoying. But I do have to say that even my viewers who do have free health, like mental health coverage, they'll have to wait for like a year and a half and that's not okay either. So there's gotta be a better way. (laughs) Yeah, there's gotta be. So you focus on marriage and family therapy. So -hmm. do you see a lot of couples in your work? I actually don't. That's kind of the one of the like misconceptions of an LMFT. It really, oh, an LMFT. Oh, no, you're fine. That's totally fine. perpetuate stereotypes oh, about. You're po- <laughs> okay. And I can see couples. That is okay. part of what I do. Okay. But the focus of an LMFT is on relationships. That's okay. why it says marriage and family therapist. So it is correct. But okay. I personally don't see a lot of couples or families. Mainly, it's just my own preference. In a private practice, luckily, you kind of get to prefer, you get to pick who you want to see to some extent. Yeah. Because couples, I mean, I have seen couples every now and again, but I ask them a lot of tough, like really tough questions at the beginning because they usually come in when it's too late. Like they've been struggling for like 10 years, haven't had sex in like three years and they want to come to therapy to fix it. And they're so angry and it's, it's like, it's almost too late. Not that it can't get better. I don't want anybody to think that it can always get better, but it just becomes, I feel like more almost like a referee in a fight than I do a therapist sometimes. Mm. So, so depending on how the couple is. Yeah. I'll decide whether or not I will take them on as a client or not. Okay. So people who have been in a relationship but haven't had sex in three years, not people like random dudes coming in and be like, I haven't had sex in three years, like in general. Yeah, no, that's totally, and, yeah. And help me with that. Okay, good. That's totally fine. Yeah, it's more like with the couples. Like Within I don't a relationship, a that's a signal to you that there's something amiss in that relationship. Like how important do you see sex as, how important is that in a relationship? I guess it differs by... It differs from couple to couple, but I do think that sex is like a barometer for something going on. Like, especially if you used to have regular sex and then you don't, what's happened? Because it's all based on like, 
I'll take couples back to like when you first were dating and I know no, no relationship stays like that, but that's always like an idea of, okay. So if you were super in love and excited and like had all that, like butterflies of the person, this would be what you would do. I see. Your sex life would look like X, right? But then if we've moved into now not even kissing or touching each other in any kind of loving way or, you know, what resentments have built up and what does that say about other things going on? Because sex itself, like I'm not a sexologist, okay. but sex and relationships, if there's a lot of it or not enough of it, or they're thinking about opening it up to other people, having an open relationship, all of that to me is are just like signals of something else going on. It's like little red flags. Really? An interest in polyamory is a red flag? If it wasn't part of the relationship before and it's just one member of the partnership. Okay. Do you see what I mean? Not mutual. Yeah, exactly. Like uh, it's all about the couple. Yeah. Because if the couple yeah. themselves is like, I'd like to explore our sexuality, I'd like to invite other people into the yeah, bedroom. And that sounds fine, forward, right? Then yeah. that's totally fine. Yeah. It's okay. just all about clear communication and agreeance and understanding between the couple. Gotcha. Like, because as a therapist, like I'm sure you know this, but like, when you take on a couple, the couple is your patient. So you're looking at them as a, that like their relationship is what you're working on okay. and the dynamic between that. So you have to make sure that both partners, Dyad, both parts yeah. of that couple are on board. Yeah. Thanks for that clarification. Thank mm -hmm. you. Yeah. That's why I ask all these clarifying questions because I want to make sure we, we're, we're talking about the right parameters. You know? Yeah, we're on the same page. Yeah, exactly. yeah. And I also don't want you to be misrepresented or misquoted, you know, as, as you're saying like, Anyone who's not into um, uh, yeah. pair bonding, monogamous, yeah, yeah totally. is is that's a red flag. I don't think that yeah. you're saying that. No. So, oh, I know you're not saying that. Uh, <laughs> so, moving on from that topic, I want to cover lots of swaths of humanity. You know, what is the best way to deal with a toxic coworker? Ooh, and that's always kind of tricky. And the best way we can do it first, like with anything in life, I feel like, is just communication. If it's safe, it's really great to try to communicate with them to figure out like, let's say the toxic coworker is like, you know, fighting with you at every turn while you work on this project together, but you have to work with them because it's not like you have a choice, right? You've been placed in this group together and you have this presentation, let's say you have to give that's really important. Yeah, I think it's really best first to communicate with them and say something to the effect of, you know, Scott, it was I'm really trying to work with you and mm. I just feel that you're not happy with the way things are going. And can you mm. tell me what's going on? Like, is there something that I'm doing? Like, first we have to come at it so we don't make them defensive. We want to open it up and be like, is there something I can do better? Is there something that's happened that's upsetting? Because oftentimes people are like when they're lashing out like that, it's like passive aggressive behavior. Yeah. And so we need to give them a way to not be passive about it, to be direct and assertive. And obviously, if things perpetuate and they don't get better and they won't communicate with you, and when you try to talk, they just scream or, you know, stonewall and don't talk yeah. to you at all, then the next step is to take it to like your boss or HR because it is a work environment and you don't have to put up with it. What if your but boss is a jerk? What if they're all jerks? Should you, get, should you change jobs? <laughs> you should probably start looking for another job. <laughs> and also talk to HR because like you might like quitting means that you don't get any funding to find another job. Let's say it's so terrible that you feel, don't feel safe at your job. You know, there are laws to protect you so that you do have some, you know, whether it's part of the unemployment that you get or something like that, they can still allow you to have that stuff because you should feel safe where you work. Communication, I find, so solves most problems. And I know in the working environment, it's best for us to at least try that so that we have like record that we tried, like keep emails you've sent you know, keep voicemails they've left for you, keep that stuff so that you have that to be like, no, I've really tried. And this mm -hmm. is what happened. 
so that you're kind of protecting your job. And at the same time, you know, and then when you reach out to HR, they don't think that, or your boss, for instance, they don't think that they were their, your first stop, that you also tried other things first, because most people want you to be an adult and try to work it out on your own. You know, they're not there to babysit people. And I've heard that from a lot of my viewers that when they went to their boss, they're like, well, have you tried on your own first? Would you apply these similar principles to if you are in a toxic relationship with someone, you know, like a, not just a toxic business partner? But mm-hmm. you're in a relationship and you're like, well, you have this unrealization, whoa, this person is really toxic. How do you get out of that? It's a little different when it's a not a work relationship because we can't always get out of our work relationships. Yeah, sure, we can look for another job, but that's not always an option for people. And we can feel a little more stuck. And so when it comes to our personal relationships, again, the same does apply like the communication. We should always try to talk to them and say like, hey, I've, you know, I've been feeling this way and try to use I statements. Don't blame them. And I statements really just means instead of me saying something like, you always do this, or you Mm -hmm. are so judgmental, people are going to get defensive if we use those statements, so they shut down. But if we use statements like, you know, I have been feeling really stressed out lately with the way our relationship is working. And when I'm spoken to in a what I assume is an aggressive manner, I find myself shutting down and I want to talk to you about it. And so we're trying to tease, I know the language seems so like small changes, but it really changes them from being potentially defensive and shutting down or fighting Mm -hmm. with us to hopefully being able to lean back, open up and have a conversation. And so that's always the first step is at least try to talk to them. Because if there's anything worth, if you can salvage the relationship, we should try. But I understand that's not always safe, nor are we able. And at that point, I usually tell my clients and my viewers, like, give it a break, get some space, Because with space can sometimes come a little bit of clarity Mm -hmm. and you can decide whether you do want to try to work on things or maybe you should, you know, end the relationship. And again, when we end the relationship, if you can, if it's safe enough, I do still think it's, it's best to call, if not see them in person and talk to them about that. How much do you deal with narcissism in your practice? Right now, not that much. I've had some in the past, uh, parents of children I was seeing as well as uh, patients of mine. Mm -hmm. It can be really difficult even as a clinician because they can be very manipulative trying Mm -hmm. to get their way. Because if people don't understand what narcissists are, what narcissism means, it's really people who put off this grandiose sense of self. They're all about self-preservation and making themselves look the best and putting themselves first. So that's kind of in a nutshell. Self-promotion. Always, yes. But it's really because they feel really fragile and not secure. So it's all, I call it like they're puffer chesting, you know, like, mm. like imagine a yeah. rooster, like just d- d- strutting or around. fish. Exactly. <laughs> you like I'm my doing puffer the face yeah. right now. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So they're like boastful and putting out their best, but they really don't feel that great. And so in order to keep people thinking they're the best and doing what they want and getting their needs met first, they'll manipulate to make that happen. And so it can be tricky in therapy because as soon as a therapist, at least in my experience, as soon as I identify that that's what's going on and try to work with them to better understand, they stop coming. And that's not 100% of the time, but it's most of the time. Like I've had the parents pull their children out Yikes. or they'll stop coming because they try to manipulate to get what they want. And that's not always, you know, it doesn't always work out. But I do believe everybody can get better if they want to. Yeah. So if they wanted to, they could. I really like that attitude. Very hopeful. You know, there's a form of narcissism I've been studying in my research called vulnerable narcissism, which is not the puffing out but version, but it's more introverted and more tied to neuroticism as a personality oh, trait. And vulnerable narcissism is more of like 
tied to borderline. In fact, we found a, that's what I was thinking because yeah, I yeah. was like anger yeah. in instead it, of anger out. That's exactly. Mm-hmm. So there's a more externalizing form of narcissism and an internalizing form of narcissism. It's more linked to depression and mm-hmm. anxiety, but they're resenting everyone in the world, and you know, like they're laying in their bed and they're not leaving their bed, you know, because they're like they're like, why won't everyone just like realize how vulnerable I am and how much you know my issues and problems are more important than everyone else's issues and problems in this world. Uh-huh. You know? So it is how actually very tied. It is very, we, we find a point in some research, 0.95 correlation between vulnerable narcissism and borderline scales. So I could see yeah. that. Yeah. And I have a video about like quiet borderline, which is like, cause some borderlines are very, cause they feel everything really intensely. So they'll right. lash out at people, Yeah, but some lash in. So it'll be like intense depressions, That's right. suicide attempts, lots of self-injury. Because it's almost like instead of anger out, anger in, which is kind of how we describe depression. Depression's anger in. Yeah. But, That's really fascinating. But while most people with vulnerable narcissism have depression, most people with depression don't have vulnerable narcissism. So I should exactly. make that, I should make it doesn't that clear. go both ways. It's not yeah. reverse backwards compatible. But yeah, yeah. So anyway, I think it's an interesting form of narcissism that has more, well, we wrote this paper recently arguing that's the one with more mental health implications. You know, yeah. you're unlikely to see the grandiose narcissist stay long on the therapist couch, but mm-hmm. you're very likely to see a lot of more vulnerable narcissists. Yeah. Yeah. That makes, really makes sense because yeah. borderline patients love therapy. Yeah. They tend to be in therapy a lot. Yeah. They love, I mean, they can be very thoughtful individuals mm-hmm. who are very interested in, in understanding themselves and understanding mm-hmm. why are they the way, I mean, they're human too. And that's a great, tra- yeah, <laughs> yeah. And that's a great trait, I think yeah. too. Like I think yeah. people try to stigmatize certain types of mental illness but i'm like hey if they're willing to do the work they can get better yeah so that's really great so how do i know if i need help you know what are some warning signs and and what to look out for yeah i think the first warning sign is usually something to do with like a psychosomatic symptom that tends to be what people notice most and when i say psychosomatic symptom i mean like the way where our mental health has deteriorated is affecting us physically so where okay. we kind of feel like we have a cold or the flu, but we go to the doctor and they're like, no, nothing's wrong with you. Okay. And we have body aches. We feel really tired. It can be really hard to concentrate. So those are some of the symptoms and signs that something bigger is going on. And that's usually where my patients, like I'll get a lot of referrals from doctors I work with because they're like, hey, they came in thinking they had the flu, but I think they're struggling with depression or anxiety, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And so I think that those are some of the first symptoms, but I find my patients are more apt to notice because that is like a physical ailment. They're more apt to notice when they can't function in their life. Mm. So aside from just, you know, feeling like you might have a cold, it can get to the point where it's like, I'm just crying all the time. I'm tearful on my way to work, or I feel panicked all the time. My heart is racing. I can't sleep well. I had to call in sick twice last week and three times this week from work because I just couldn't get out of bed and I couldn't shower. I think if there's ever, or we can't socialize, like we find ourselves making plans and having to cancel them because we're like, oh, I just can't do that. If the things that we used to be able to do with ease have become really, really difficult, I think that's as soon as you can notice that in yourself. If it's just one thing you had to cancel or a few things, hopefully the earlier the better, but that's when you really should consider seeing someone. Is it okay to have like days like this morning? I felt I ticked all those boxes. Like, is that okay to have days like that where you're like, wake up in bed and you're like, you know what, I don't really want to deal with the world today? Like, yeah, how totally. many days in a row? I mean, I give my patients like a week to maybe almost two weeks before I'm like, that's a problem. I feel like most people have bad days or a few bad days or we'll have like a stressful week or two. But if it gets past 
in my mind, if it gets past like 12, 13 days, then I'm going to start to worry because I feel like all of us can have like a three or four days. Okay. We can feel bad. And that's just kind of part of the ebb and flow of being a human and having oh. life stressors. And yeah, you're good. Don't worry. You're totally good. <laughs> Not time to call Katie Morton. <laughs> I want to circle back to something we started talking about in the very beginning of this podcast, but we didn't close the thread. And that's what are the main types of therapy that exist right now that you think are have the most scientific support for them and have you think are really valid? I mean, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, is the one that's easiest for researchers to track. It can be very easy to track symptoms that way, you know, because that's kind of what they do is like behavioral techniques. And then how many of these behaviors are you still doing that are harmful versus helpful? CBT is probably the most research supported type of therapy. And then DBT, obviously, I'm a huge believer in DBT, dialectical behavior therapy. I also believe in a lot of the trauma work. Like I have a friend of mine who does EMDR, Hmm. which is eye movement. What is it? Why do I always forget what that's called? But I actually have to reference my own book for this because I forget all the ones that I included because there are quite a few therapies. And I also tell my viewers, I'm like, don't think that just because you haven't heard of a type of therapy, that doesn't mean it's not going to help you. And just because a therapist tells you that this type of therapy is great, doesn't mean that it's going to work. Like everybody's going to be different. And most therapists pick and choose from different types. Like I do a lot of CBT, I do a lot of DBT, but I also have pulled in things I've learned over the years. Like I do a lot of narrative therapy where I have my patients tell me the stories of times because the more I learn about trauma, the more I realize that our brain likes to store stories. And so if you have them put it into a narrative, it can be easier for them to process. There's exposure therapy. If you struggle with any kind of fear or phobia, I think that's a great tool. Those are just off the top of my head, the ones that I utilize the most. But aren't there like, I mean, what you're saying sounds good, but aren't there really just BS therapies out there that just like, you know, like if I go like, and and so I was like, okay, I'm going to like align your 57th chakra with like the, (laughs) you know, I call this the uh, crystal vibrational frequency therapy of your soul. Like, mm-hmm. aren't I allowed to call BS on that? Like, oh, even totally. if I feel like it's working, like some things are actually BS even like we can like they're placebos, right? That's why we have science. Yes. You yes. know, like, yeah. But I think the reason that people struggle to rule out things completely is because psychology is like a social science. It's not always something you can yeah, like quantitatively. Yeah, you can't like quantitatively look at it. You can't say, oh, well, this helped these people. Their, you know, Beck depression scale went down from six you know, all the way down to one. So they're doing better. But because that's not always how you can track it. People aren't always like that. Mental health can be different for everybody. And so there are some tried and true therapies. I feel like there's a therapy for everything. But the most common ones are the ones I mentioned in my book and the ones that I feel like are supported and things that you should try and be open to. But overall, we know that it matters more about the therapist and less about the therapy style. Oh, that's, that's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Cause more about the relationship. If that's all it comes down to. Then, like, shouldn't we pick our friends very carefully? Yes, one hundred, <laughs> always, one hundred percent. Get rid of toxic friends. <laughs> yes, I've, if you can, if they won't change, yeah. Because the relationships with the people we have end up like filling up all of our free time and then changing, making our life better or worse. You know. I feel like there's an easier mechanism to break up with a relationship partner than a friend. Like, I feel like. It's like, you know, you say like there's something in place for that. Like, hey, we've been together and I think it's time for us to take a break. But when you do that with the friends, people, it's somehow like it's worse. You know, it's like 
It's like, hey, you know what? I just don't want to be your friend anymore. Like, for some reason, someone takes, like, if someone says, I don't want to be your lover anymore, it's almost like it might hurt, but we, like, understand that that's, like, a mechanism. Yeah, it's, like, like, part of what we've had to deal with. If it doesn't work out, we break up. (laughs) Yeah. There's nothing, like, no culturally, do you know what I'm saying? Like, Yeah, for friendship breakups. Yeah, there's no, yeah, this is, like, a Seinfeld episode, but. It is. No, but it makes sense, though, because I think, I think the problem is, I was just talking to one of a colleague and a friend of mine. Her name's Alexa. I've had her in my videos. But oh, we you were said Alexa to... and my Alexa Amazon thing just turned on. Oh, did uh, it? Yeah. It recognizes my voice. Yeah, it does. Do you want to ask uh, Alexa anything? <laughs> Maybe later. Okay. I'll have to think okay. about it. Okay. But my friend Alexa, she, uh, <laughs> she and I were talking about how it's for some reason in our culture, maybe, maybe it's just in our culture, I'm not sure, but it's expected that once you have a friend, you have them for life, unless something happens, like right. a big thing. And she was like, I disagree with that. And I was like, me too, because me we three. grow and we change. Yeah, we grow and change. And like, it doesn't have to be. And I, I mean, I've ended friendships in the past, let's say like three to five years. I've ended two close friendships, not because I hated them yeah. or because I'm angry, but because we're not compatible anymore. That's it. But people don't, don't, but the thing is, but people, yeah, but people will have, get very defensive over that. Like they won't be able to, even if you say like, it's nothing really personal. Like I'm not saying you're a horrible human being. It's just like, you know, we're not, we're just different. We're not compatible. If you say we're not compatible anymore, like if you say that in like a relationship context, like people get it, what that means. But when you say that in the friendship thing, they they like, will take it so personally. Oh, totally. Cause I don't know why that is, but one of my friends did that when I was just trying to like, consciously uncouple from them as people say they got really mad and tried to start a fight and i was like no i care for you i'm not mad at you i just don't think we're friends anymore exactly and i I mean it didn't end up going that well but it was as good as i could get it to go you know yeah yeah but you know you're practicing what you preach because you are a big believer that communication is the key to a happy healthy life and a big part of communication is healthy assertiveness and uh, healthy assertiveness of your needs. And as you have talked about in some of your videos about uh-huh. the difference between aggressive assertiveness, a healthy assertiveness, passive aggressive assertiveness. I find yep. that the worst. People who are it like, is the worst. The pa- like I almost would prefer the angry one if I had to choose between the angry or the, you know what I mean? Me or the too. passive aggressive. Cause At like, least I'd know. Ugh, like, aggressive. like vulnerable narcissism is correlated with passive aggressive. You mm-hmm. know, it's like they never just actually say what they, they just resent it. They resent it <laughs> secretly. Yeah. They do other things yeah. to make your life yeah, difficult. Yeah, yeah. You're like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Half the time, you actually probably like 90% of the time, you don't even know you've done anything wrong. You're I like, know. why are they being such a jerk? I know. <laughs> exactly. So that's why communication is. So it sounds like you're practicing what you preach. I mean, if you feel like you're not growing with, I mean, isn't it better to break off a friendship that you feel like isn't healthy than staying in it and faking it and neither of you are growing? Yeah, I completely agree. I think it is healthier to end it. And I think the unfortunate thing is that, and I've learned by being a, doing my best to communicate is that people are so used to people not communicating that when you do, it's like, uh, they don't know how to manage like an actual conversation. And that's why people can lash out and everything. But I still believe that the more we all communicate, the better it will feel. And the sooner we get toxic relationships out of our lives or relationships that are just not benefiting either party and the freer we'll feel to be our best self. You know, isn't that the goal to like grow and change and be happier and be the best we can be? I love it. (laughs) Well, yes, yes, I think so. Yeah. For listeners out there, if you are trying to communicate, 
and people aren't used to you communicating, know that it can take them a little time to get used to it as well and to be open to it. So yeah, tread lightly at first. Yeah. And, and phrase it in a compassionate way. Don't say like, look, I'm over you. <laughs> like I'm, all, yeah. I'm so over this friendship. Now, of course you're feeling that, right? Like totally. <laughs> I think a lot of people, you know, if we're being honest, you might have friends where you're feeling, I'm so over this. Like they keep calling me every weekend. Hey, can we hang out? And like, you just, all you really want to do is be like, no, I don't want to hang out. Yeah. But we say, how often do we say yes in our lives when we don't really want to? And this is a general principle of life is that I feel like most of us, say yes to things a lot just out of politeness not out of oh, totally. uh, authenticity you know and i think the more we can live an authentic life the better and sometimes i, I was something i was reading the other day and i forget who it was was saying it but anyway it was somebody had set, put something up on either like instagram or facebook and i was reading the caption and they were like i've been trying to live a more authentic life and they said sometimes i find myself saying yes when i don't mean it and i found that a very small no can equate to a very large yes. And that just really resonated with me because I was like, sometimes you say yes, even when you don't want to. And if you said no, that opens up that time to do something that makes you feel so much more yourself and so much better. And it could really be healing. It could be that self-care that you need or putting more effort into that relationship you've been wanting to put effort into. You know, And sometimes that small no that can feel kind of hard at the time, but it's really not that big of a deal can open up all this other stuff. And so I keep trying to think of that, like, sometimes the small no equals a big yes. I truly love that. So what are some things people can do? Like, how can people get more help when they really do need it? Like, can you give some practical advice to people who are listening to this podcast who may feel like they don't really know where to start their search for help? Yeah, I think if we're having trouble in life and we're just feeling like we just need a little extra support, going to therapy once a week is kind of where you start um, because that's like the lowest level of care. That's what all of us can benefit from. Like going every, <laughs> exactly. And it's the easiest to get, even though I know it's a total pain sometimes. But like if you want to use insurance, go through your insurance, get the list, make some calls. The best way to find a therapist is to get like a referral from a friend, like word of mouth who's seen someone, or if you already see a a regular doctor, which most of you should get your physicals every year, you can ask them if they work with any therapists or know of any therapists in the area or your psychiatrist. Like I work with a lot of different people. So those are kind of the ways to get in. And then you just have to notice how you're feeling. So if going in once a week leaves you still feeling worse and you find your mental health getting worse, remember we talked about it turning into mental illness and I can't function, I can't get to work, I can't engage with my friends in the way I want then ask your therapist to see you twice a week. And then from there, if it's still not getting better, then there are like partial programs where you go in for, let's say, three half days a week. So you get group therapy, you get extra one-on-one therapy. You can kind of see we're just building up the support that you get. And then from there, there are full programs where you go in for most of the day, like every day, like three to five days a week, all day. And then they're inpatient. So then those are ones that you live at. And then hospitalizations above that, if you have like, It depends on where you live and what's available to you, whether you have the difference between inpatient and hospitalization available. But that's when you just don't feel safe living on your own. Like your mental health is is deteriorated so much so that your illness is taking over and you just can't. And no, there's no shame in increasing your level of care. It's, It's better that we do it sooner. So if you feel you're not getting better, ask for that extra session because it can get better more quickly that way and not like white knuckle it and hold on until you need inpatient or a hospitalization. Wow. You're doing such a great service to people. So many people. I know that you get oh, so many people viewing your YouTube videos and uh, assume a lot of people bought your book and 
So I hope this adds to that, you know, this conversation. I hope that people listen to this and realize there is hope that we can change if we want to, you know, but you gotta, yes. you gotta want to. Yeah. I'm going to end this podcast with a quote from you that I like. You said, let's work together to shed light on the truth and keep the positive conversation about mental health going. I know I will. Yeah. That's so, the very end. That's the yeah. end. I know. Well, thank you. <laughs> it's also the end yeah. of this podcast today. So thank you for having me on the show. Or not, not yeah. I mean, I mean, thanks for being on. <laughs> thanks for being. <clears throat> Let me try that again. Thank you so much for being on the show, Katie. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of The Psychology Podcast on iTunes. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's better H E L P dot com. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.